Released in 2003, Memories of Murder chronicles the grueling five-year investigation into a series of homicides that gripped the city of Hwaesyeong in the Jeongjido province of South Korea from the mid-1980s to the early 90s. The victims, each found bound and gagged in public spaces, were all female and aged between 14 and 71. That the killer was never caught was, for a long while, a source of embarrassment to the authorities. But since South Korean law had a statute of limitations of 15 years, the cases have long since gone cold. All of which means that Memories of Murder, directed by Bong Joon-ho, appears to cover similar territory to David Fincher's Zodiac. We ran them on Rick Marshall. No, Robert. No, I know you don't think it's him. No, But I, mean, I think that no, Marshall knew Darlene, and I can't talk to Majot Robert, or Linda, so Robert, I'm going to talk to Bob. Robert, Bob. stop what? it. What? Okay, the Rick Marshalls of this world will suck you dry. They're blind alleys. What? He said he wasn't going to announce his murders anymore, Dave. He was do just going to do it. Do you know what the chances of us arresting someone are now? Too much time has gone by, okay? Too, too, too much of the evidence is lost. People get old, Robert. They forget. Working from James Vanderbilt's meticulously crafted screenplay, Fincher's 2007 masterpiece focuses a little less on the search for the killer and a little bit more on the mental chaos wrought on those investigating the murders. Detectives and journalists alike, whose professional and personal lives struggled under the weight of solving the crimes. The aggregate of which made the argument that the ultimate victim of any homicide is society itself. Which no doubt explains Zodiac's very sombre tone. But while covering similar territory, Memories of Murder stands apart from Fincher's film because of its strikingly different tone. With co-writer Shim Sung Bo, Bong opens his film in a manner that is so irreverent as to be funny. And so funny that Bong runs the risk of undermining from the very start his own chosen direction. Here is the director at the Brussels International Fantastic Film Festival in 2007 talking about his approach to filmmaking. My movie is very Korean, I think. A lot, uh, quite many elements only Korean people can understand. Of course, it, it's a quite a subtle, small nuances, but at the same time, I hope to show my movie to outside foreign audience because I really hope uh, foreign people can understand Korean people or culture or society with my, by my movie. The Korean Peninsula has been of keen interest to numerous foreign powers for almost two centuries. Firstly Japan, which all but annexed the region in the mid-1800s. And then since World War II, the opposing forces of China and America have been vying for its control. Which explains how the peninsula came to be divided along ideological lines. For the United States, South Korea represented a strategic democratic foothold in Southeast Asia. And given that America had occupied the country with a military presence since before the Korean War, it might only be expected that by the 1990s, South Korean cinema had adopted many of the tropes of Hollywood cinema. And that is key to understanding what Bong was doing. He didn't play into Hollywood tropes, but rather against their conventions. And so what we get is not a cliché-ridden genre piece, but a treatise on masculinity, institutional repression, and ultimately, national identity. That is what qualifies Bong's film as a masterpiece and transforms it into the realm of tragedy and thus far beyond the aspirations of practically every single film in the frustratingly formulaic and increasingly sensationalist genre. Well, where's the stocking that was tied around this one's neck? How'd you know about that? I mean, I assume it was a stocking and not pantyhose. Tied in a big loopy bow like, like this one, right? Right. Well, for goodness sakes, 
It's the Boston Strangler. He's imitating Albert DeSalvo's crime scene right down to the kinky little details. You're telling me this guy's copycatting a serial killer's been dead for... 20 years. Memories of Murder opens with Detective Park Doo Man, played by Song Kang Ho, investigating a crime scene in a remote field where the remains of a young woman have been callously dumped in a drain. To say that Detective Park is ill-equipped to deal with the situation is evident from as soon as he attempts to inspect what lies in the murky trench. He doesn't have a torch, so he yanks from the undergrowth the shards of a mirror and uses that to reflect the sunlight into the shadows. In the scenes that follow, we see that lacking a torch will be the least of the investigation's worries. And it's not just Detective Park. The entire police department lacks the necessary tools, resources, training and expertise to solve even the most obvious of puzzles. And Bong portrays the team as little more than South Korea's version of the Keystone Cops. Here is Bong once more, this time at the Toronto Film Festival in 2017, being interviewed by fellow director Richie Mehta, with Jason Yu serving as interpreter. That is correct. He's asked about that a lot during interviews or festivals. Um, he, he's asked about how you mingle comedy with such a serious subject. Um, another uh, um, popular question is how he mixes genres or how he mixes tones, shifts tones. To be honest, um, he's never really conscious of the tone shifts or the comedy that he Im Im implies. Um, he doesn't think, oh, the tone shifts at this point or it's funny at this point. He's never conscious of it during the filmmaking process or the screenwriting process. He just believes that he has some kind of abnormal psychology or, or weird mind that makes him do this. Further evidence of the investigation's meager resources can be seen in the station where the staff do not have a dedicated space where they can take mugshots of the suspects and process their fingerprints. Instead, Park has to make do with his own small camera, and then he has to recruit junior officer Kwon Kuyok, played by Go Seo Hee, to cut the images down to manageable sizes, at which point, Park then pastes them into his own scrappy book, hastily improvised from a diary. He can't even properly operate his own typewriter and needs the help of a suspect to indent the paragraphs. When another victim is found dead, her remains this time dumped in an open field for everyone to see, the ineptitude reaches a new low. In an extended single take, Bong follows Detective Park as he stops about the field, yelling at his team that they, the public and the media, are trampling about a crime scene and interfering with the evidence. Park's commanding officer, Sergeant Koo Hee Bong, played by Byung Hee Bong, arrives, steps from his car and tumbles down the embankment into the field. That comical image then turns to farce when moments later, the forensic inspector commits the same pratfall. These men are clumsy and inept to the point of embarrassment, if not contempt. Then, when they haul in a fresh suspect, he turns out to be a detective from Seoul sent to help with the investigation. With the arrival of Detective Seo Tae-yoon, played by Kim Sang-kyung, the bungling team is now complete. The other member not yet mentioned being Cho Yong-koo, played by Kim Roy-ha, whose MO is to rough up suspects and beat confessions out of them. In other words, Bong and Shim have now completed the gallery of cliché characters, who can now roll out cliché dialogue in cliched confrontations that typified so many Hollywood thrillers from the 80s and 90s. Tell me about Monty Ronan. Good cop. He's, uh, he's the kind of guy you want backing you up when the shit goes down. That's what you think. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I think. 
He's dirt and you know it. Oh, yeah? Well, you work the streets with him, huh? Hey, pal, we got 30 homicides a week, you know? Special Agent Utah, this is not some job flipping burgers at the local drive-in. Yes, the surfboard bothers me. Yes, your approach to this whole goddamn case bothers me. And yes, you bother me! These slaps, they, they look familiar, don't they? With these uh, silver packets, they look like bricks. Little red tags on them, not so high. All that heroin, gone. This is our career bust. This is what, $100 million? Gone. Oh, this is bad. No, let me call it what it is. This is fucked up. Got that right, detective. While Ridley Scott's Black Rain, Catherine Bigelow's Point Break, and Michael Bay's Bad Boys all boast very slick imagery, for the most part, where Hollywood thrillers wallow in cliches, they also lack in visual cohesion. Which is another reason why Bong's film stands so far above so many other films in the genre. Working closely with his crew, cinematographer Kyung-Koo Kim, production designer Seong Hai Ryu, and costume designer Yu Sun Kim, Bong carefully restricted the colour palette for the vast majority of the film's 130-minute running time. Opening the film out in the wheat field, the frame is drenched in such golden sunlight it looks like a serial commercial. And composer Taro Iwashiro's lush orchestration reinforces that aesthetic. But the aggregate of which actually belies the tone. This is no idyllic pasture, nor is it a nostalgic landscape. What follows thereafter is a colour palette shorn of warmth and comfort and instead we get grim greys, pale blues and lots of black. And while a lot of the detecting takes place indoors, when the investigation ventures outside, it brings us to rain-drenched streets, fuming rubbish tips and quarries where everyone wears masks to protect them against the dust. The quarry is just the latest enormous government-funded project designed to modernise the country and present a triumph of the democratic south over the communist north. But something malevolent has been unearthed. Somewhere within the population, a killer is lurking, and that no one can identify him is underscored by all the workers wearing masks. It is as if the authorities won't admit that something so heinous could possibly exist in their society. Which is precisely what happened in the Soviet Union from 1978 to 1990. There, a murder spree committed by Andrei Chikatilo went undetected mainly because the Politburo refused to believe that a communist utopia could produce such a malignant aberration. In that time, Chikatilo murdered and mutilated over 50 women and children. Perhaps it is just a coincidence, but the case only broke open as the communist regime began to crumble. Either way, three years later, American writer Robert Cullen chronicled the investigation with The Killer Department, which two years later Chris Garalmo adapted for HBO into Citizen X. I hope this latest murder puts to rest the idea that the gypsy boy did it. Why? Because he was in custody when this one was killed. So odd. It could be a gang of which he was only a part. We can't discount the man as a suspect quite so cavalierly. He did confess. Mind you, it was only in the 1970s that the FBI set up the Behavioural Science Division and began criminal profiling. That history has become the Netflix series Mindhunter, the first two episodes of which were directed by David Fincher. Forty years ago, your FBI was founded hunting down John Dillinger, Babyface Nelson, Machine Gun Kelly, criminals who thumbed their noses at society but were basically in it for personal gain. Now, we have extreme violence between strangers. Where do we go when motive becomes elusive? 
Having restricted his colour palette to such dreary and dingy tones, Bong then suddenly slashes red across his canvas. The red dress of the victims, the red underwear worn by one of the suspects, and of course, the blood that is shed during the search for the killer. For contrast, consider how in Man on Fire, Tony Scott painted the criminal investigation. A man can be an artist. And anything, fool, whatever. It depends on how good he is at it. Creasy's art is death. He's about to paint his masterpiece. Memories of Murder, the title intrigues. The film is neither told in flashback, nor is it in any way a subjective recollection. So whose memories are they? That really only comes into focus in the film's final moments. Having spent all the time struggling with the case, the mystery is then simply abandoned, as Bong catapults the time frame forward more than a decade, significantly to 2003. The film began in 1986, when South Korea was in its Fifth Republic, an era that had been ushered in in 1979 when the President of the Fourth Republic, Park Chung-hee, had been assassinated by Korea's Central Intelligence Agency. Despite claiming itself to be a democracy, under President Park, South Korea was in essence and practice a dictatorship. However, that autocracy was not removed with his death. He was replaced by Roh Tae-woo. Although Roh was inaugurated as president after the first elections in 16 years, he had a military background. And as the film's opening caption reads, South Korea was still a military dictatorship. Which means that the memories are those of the nation the population remembering a traumatic episode which itself took place in an era of immense strain. The film ends with Park, having long since left the police force, now working as a salesman in the private sector. But he simply cannot let go of the case. He goes back out to the scene where the first victim was found. Much has changed, but the past has not been resolved. The killer was never identified. But, it turns out, he was seen. A young schoolgirl tells Park she recently saw a man looking in the same drain. Asked what he looked like, the girl describes him as sort of normal. He could have been anyone. And then Park looks directly into the camera. Many films have broken the fourth wall, but precious few have finished with such an image. You can go back to France on June the 6th, 1958, when Claude Chabrol premiered his debut picture, Le Beau Serge, at the Vichy Film Festival. There, the title character, learning he has just become a father, bursts into tears and laughing turns to the camera. At which point, Chabrol has the image go out of focus, as if conveying Serge's overwhelming emotion. In 1959, François Truffaut ended his own debut feature, The 400 Blows, in a somewhat similar fashion, only this time adding a freeze frame. And one year later, Jean-Luc Godard offered his own variation in his own debut, Breathless, when he had Jean Seberg simply stare enigmatically down the lens. Which is almost the same way Billy Wilder ended Sunset Boulevard some eight years earlier. Norma Desmond walking towards the camera and drifting into a delusional haze. You see, this is my life. It always will be. There's nothing else. Just us. And the cameras. And those wonderful people out there in the dark. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. 
Sabong ends his film with Park looking at the camera. But what that actually means is that he is looking at the Korean audience, which in turn means he just might be looking directly at the killer. Park's eyes fill with tears, in memory of murders committed and regret that the killer was never brought to justice. <laughs>